I was remembering this week the very first GPS that I ever had. It was given to me by Jane Meacham. Many of you remember her. And in retrospect now, it seems like such a dinosaur. I mean, it was so big and thick and unwieldy. The touchscreen wasn't very sensitive at all. Uh, I remember the first time using it. It was inspiring and also a little bit terrifying when for the first time I, I, I could imagine that these satellites know exactly where I am. Not only do they know where I am, but they're sending me wherever they want me to go. And I know we live under this illusion that we are the ones that, pro, that program the GPSs to take us where we want to go, but all of us have had that experience, a Waze fail or a Google Maps fail, where the map decides it wants to take us somewhere different, and it becomes our guide. I remember one of the first times I used this new GPS, Julie and I had been invited with our family to visit some new friends of ours that we had recently met at their home in the, generally in the, the Alphaville Tambore area. Um, and I programmed in the address and it said it found the location and we went. Well, once we got into that general vicinity, this is sometimes how slow I am, we got into this infinity loop where we kept driving around in a circle you know, in these same few blocks. And it was only about the third or fourth time through the cycle that I realized that we had been at this place before. And the GPS kept telling us just to go in this circle, go in this circle, go in this circle. It never took us to the destination, never took us where we needed to go. And I think that maybe our perspective of human history is similar to what, we, what I experienced with that GPS, that human history is just this never-ending cycle it's just this circle that keeps revolving and revolving and revolving. We keep going over the same territory over and over again. There's a very well-known phrase, which is history repeats itself. And yes, there is some truth to that. There are patterns that emerge over the course of history, and we see certain events and trends that are repeated. But while history may repeat itself in certain ways, that does not apply to God's plan for human history. His redemptive plan is not a never-ending cycle. His redemptive plan is taking us to a destination. We're not in a meaningless, revolving, spinning loop. We are living the intentionality of the plan of God in a specific direction. Have you noticed in the book of Acts how often the sermons preached start in the past and walk through history? That's what Peter did on the day of Pentecost. It's what Stephen did shortly before he was stoned and martyred. It's what Peter did to a lesser extent, but nonetheless he did it with the centurion Cornelius in his house. It's what Philip did with the Samaritans and with the eunuch um, on the, the Gaza road. And in the passage that we arrive at today, Paul is going to do the same thing. He's going to start early in history and he is going to walk through historically tracing a path of God's redemption, of God's plan. And as he does that, we're going to see a certain theme emerge in Paul's thinking and in his understanding of redemption history. And it's the theme of dis placement. 
That's why I've called the sermon this morning a history of displacements. One person, one people, one concept displaced by another. And each of those displacements drives forward the plan of God. As we look at these events in Acts, we're going to be examining seven displacements that Paul highlights in his rehearsal of redemption history. And for each of them, we'll also see how they move the plan of God forward toward its culmination. Full disclosure, the reading this morning is really long. So I invite you right now to commit to staying awake with me through the reading of God's word. Okay, I'll be reading from Acts, surprise, surprise, chapter 13, beginning with verse 13 and through the end of the chapter. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. 
as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere. You will not let your holy one see decay. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The first displacement in this passage is actually not part of Paul's sermon. It comes before the sermon and it has to do with the missionary team itself. Until now, it has always been Barnabas and Saul. Now notice how different this first phrase is. Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia. Paul has displaced Barnabas as the primary missionary of the church to the Gentiles. And that's part of God's plan. It is moving God's purposes forward. It is moving evangelism forward. It also highlights the character of Barnabas, who is truly an encourager. Remember, that's what his name means. Barnabas is a nickname. It means son of encouragement or son of exhortation. Barnabas has been responsible for mentoring and uplifting Paul. Barnabas was the one who first introduced Paul into the church 
in Jerusalem because they didn't believe this guy was for real. He was a persecutor. He was a violent man. He was anti-Christian. And the church was unwilling to accept him until Barnabas vouched for him. A couple weeks ago, at when, when Barnabas was in Antioch, what did he do? He left Antioch, traveled 100 miles by foot to Tarsus to go look for Paul. And he finds Paul and he brings him back to Antioch to minister together with him. At that point, it's still Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. But now we see that the one mentored has become the leader. And in this, we see Barnabas's humility and also his, his joy in mentoring and lifting up new leader. And he is willing to release Paul and to take second place. That's true encouragement, true humility. And so Paul takes his foremost, his, his position as foremost missionary of all time to the Gentiles, leading the movement of God's plan toward his people. Now, after this brief introduction in the passage, we learn of the change in leadership, and then we, we have this brief phrase about Mark leaving them and returning to Jerusalem. That's going to be important later on, even though not a big deal is made of it here. And then Luke gets to the meat of the text. And the meat of this text is Paul's sermon in the local synagogue on that first Sabbath in Pisidian Antioch. And I know it can get confusing because there are two Antiochs that are addressed in the book of Acts. Uh, we were in Syrian Antioch a couple weeks ago. Now we're in a different region that's known as Pisidia, and this is Pisidian Antioch. Uh, comparably, we could do a quick search and find out how many other São Paulos there are in Brazil, because there are many. So, okay, that's, we're in a different city with the same name, Pisidian Antioch. Paul addresses his words in the sermon to Jews and God-fearers. God-fearers, remember, were the people, were the Gentiles who had come to respect and even to follow Yahweh, the God of the Jews, but they had not fully converted to Judaism, at least not yet. So the people to whom Paul speaks, they have at least some understanding of Jewish history, and he uses that. The audience was familiar with it, so he starts back in, in their history and begins to march through time. And the second displacement of this passage, but the first one of the sermon, is the displacement of the Canaanite nations by Israel. And we see this in verse 19. Paul describes it. Seven Canaanite nations are displaced so that room is made for Israel, God's chosen people. God chooses Israel and then he makes a place for them, which we've often called the promised land or Canaan. But in order to make that their place, he had to then displace the seven nations that were living there. God advancing his plan. Why his plan? Because Israel was going to be the community to whom and through whom he was going to reveal himself to the world. Displacing the pagan nations in favor of his chosen people, Israel. Now moving on to the third displacement. So just as a quick review, the first one is, the, is Saul, I'm sorry, back up, Barnabas displaced by Paul. And by the way, it's such a relief now to be able to call him Paul because I kept trying to call him Saul because he was Saul up until recently. 
Now we can all say Paul freely, okay? And then the second displacement, which we just examined, the displacement of the Canaanite peoples by the chosen nation Israel. The third displacement is King Saul displaced by King David. Saul, the first Canaanite, the first king of Israel, for whom the people had such high hopes, he was a good-looking guy, he was tall, he was impressive, he looked kingly. He ends up a complete and abject failure, rejected by God for pride and disobedience, and he's powerless to save his nation from the Philistine threat. And in his place, God raises up who? David, King David. As the text here says, a man after God's own heart who will do whatever God wants him to do. Now, he sets this up as a contrast to Saul, King Saul. Saul is displaced so that King David is put in place. The way that the Bible describes David as a man after God's own heart should be a very profound comfort to every daughter and son of God. Because David was far from perfect. We know this. We have delved into David's sins and his perversions. And they're, quote, you know, the big sins. Murder, adultery, disobedience to God. Anyway, we we know all those things. And how is it then that God himself can refer to David as a man after his own heart? And yet Saul is not. I think it has to do with David's consistent responses of repentance when he is confronted by his sin. Something we do not see in Saul's history. Saul was unrepentant. And so that's why I say there is hope for us because the fact that David was a man after God's own heart wasn't based on David's perfection or his performance or how holy he was or how good he was. It was based on God and David's repentance. And that gives hope to all of us that all of us are called to be sons and daughters after God's own heart. Not because we can achieve perfection, not because we are perfect ourselves, not because we are so great, not because we do more good than we do bad, but because we are always invited to repent and to be restored and forgiven. Um, So the displacement of Saul by David. And of course, it's from David's line that the Messiah is going to come. This is God's redemptive plan. He's putting David in place Because Jesus is going to be David's descendant from the root of Jesse, from the stump of Jesse. A savior is going to come. The Messiah will be born. God moving his redemptive plan forward using displacement. In this sermon, Paul shows that Jesus is the climax of history. So his incarnation, life, work, words, death, resurrection, and ascension are together the high point and most important events that ever have or ever will occur within the bounds of human time. Theologians actually refer to this as the Christ event, meaning all of Christ's actions and interactions and life on earth. In the fourth displacement, 
Paul recounts the story of Jesus' accusation, his trial, his unjust condemnation, his crucifixion, and his death. Now, up until now, this is not a terribly unusual story. I mean, false accusations, they happen all the time. Compromised trials, again, that's not unheard of in human history. Unjust condemnations, people uh, judged unfairly, absolutely, unfortunately, far too normal. Crucifixion perhaps is less common nowadays, but execution exists, and even execution, um, an innocent execution. And then, of course, death. Death is the great equalizer. We're all going to die. And so if Christ's story ends there, there's no great displacement. There's also no gospel. As Paul himself is going to write later on, he's going to say, if Christ is not risen, if Christ is not resurrected, then we of all people are to be most pitied. Because the resurrection is the gospel. And that's the great displacement that Paul brings out in his sermon. Death is displaced by life. Jesus dies, but death is no longer the final word. God raised Jesus from that death and he now lives. If you just look at the page, Paul spends more time and words on the resurrection than on any other point in his sermon. He spends 11 verses. And so he should. Because, why? Without the resurrection, there's no victory, there's no hope, there's no Christianity. So regarding the resurrection, note again in verse 31 how Paul appeals to witnesses. I, I, maybe I've overemphasized this idea of witnesses as a theme in Acts. But when you start talking about something miraculous, like someone being raised from the dead, I want to know who saw that. I want to know if there's someone that I know, someone who is trustworthy, who can bear witness to that fact. You know, the speed at which fake news can shoot around the world, or even real news can shoot around the world, or lies. And we all get those suspect WhatsApps, you know, claiming these incredible things or these terrible things. And when I get those, my first question is always, what's the source? I want to know if the source is trustworthy. I want to know if I'm familiar with the source. I want to know if the person or people bearing witness to this event or to this occurrence, if they're trustworthy. Of course we do. And these early preachers of the gospel, they understand that need. If we're going to talk about someone rising from the dead, I want to make sure that you know that there are trustworthy people who saw him, who walked with him, who lived with him, who ate with him, who listened to him, who lived with him after he died. And so they consistently, consistently reference the many witnesses of Christ's resurrection. No exception here. Paul does exactly that. But there's an ongoing challenge to us, sisters and brothers. You know this, don't you? You've heard me say it so many times in Acts. We walk in their shoes. We are today the modern, contemporary witnesses of the power of the resurrection of Jesus. 
Because if you are a daughter or son of God, you have been transformed by him. And you are being transformed by him. And your witness of the truth of the gospel is important, it's crucial, it's powerful. You are witnesses together with these ancient witnesses of whom Paul speaks. And God's redemptive plan rolls on through history. Death displaced by life. And this brings us to the fifth displacement. The fifth one is guilt displaced by forgiveness. Read verse 38. I'm going to go through it again. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. A couple of thoughts here on forgiveness. First of all, forgiveness is costly. It means it has a cost. We often think of forgiveness as being something free. Well, it is free to the one who is forgiven. That doesn't mean that somebody else hasn't paid for it. Forgiveness actually carries a very high price. This has happened to me maybe once or twice in a restaurant, eating lunch, dinner, I don't remember exactly which. And I'm finished, and I ask for the bill. And the waiter says, well, there was another table of people over there, and they paid, for, they paid your bill. Wow. That's an incredible blessing, and also sometimes a little awkward, you know. But it, it's, wow, that, that was exciting, that's fun. And you leave, and you walk out, and you're like, wow, no one paid for that minute meal. That meal was free. But that's not true. See, the meal was paid for, I just wasn't the one who paid it. In the same way, forgiveness that we receive, we receive it freely, but that's because Jesus paid for it. Sin must be paid for. So forgiveness is free to be received by us, not because it just exists freely, because it's already been paid for by Christ. So that's the first point I want to draw out about forgiveness. It's costly. The second one follows that. Because it's costly... Forgiveness is not a license to sin. Just because we're forgiven, that doesn't mean that, wow, now I just get to delve into whatever sin I want because, huh, I'm forgiven. And if I sin today, Jesus will forgive me. And if I sin the next day, Jesus will forgive me. That attitude is a sinful, self-defeating attitude in and of itself. So let me illustrate it this way. We'll stay with the restaurant theme for now. Some of you might be familiar with um, a restaurant chain in the United States called Cheesecake Factory. It's primarily renowned because its menu is the size of a dictionary. Um, it's like an encyclopedia. And that might sound like an exaggeration to you, but it's 30 pages long. I counted last time. 30 pages of menu. Um, so imagine that a close friend of yours or your family has said, I want to take you out you and your family out, I'm paying for it, and I want to take you to the Cheesecake Factory for dinner. So it's a wonderful gift. You all go there together. You sit down. The waiter or the waitress comes to your table, hands you the menus. You look over it, and you look at your friend across the table, and you think, they're paying for this. And you turn to the waiter and say, I would like three of everything on the menu, please. And you know you have no, first of all, you have no ability to eat it all. You don't have any intention to eat it all, but it's free. 
Isn't that the attitude that we sometimes have? It's free, so I'm taking everything I can. Vou dar prejuízo, you know, like, they, like we say in Portuguese. I'm going to make sure they pay for it. Um, what, what would that communicate to your friend? How would that show honor or respect or gratefulness for what they had done in wanting to honor you and give you a gift. And the same is true of Christ. I'm not saying that we will never sin once we're forgiven, but I'm saying that if we have the attitude that because forgiveness is free, I don't have to worry about sin, I don't have to avoid sin, I don't have to confess sin, I don't have to repent from sin, that is not a godly attitude. And it also would tend to show that we have never really been repentant in the first place. So regarding forgiveness, one, it is costly. Someone pays, a co- pays it. Secondly, it's not a license to sin. And the third one, there's, there are many other things we could say about forgiveness. But the third one I, I'm drawing attention to because it's come up a lot recently in conversations and in counseling sessions that I've had with different people. And that is the need that each of us has to forgive ourselves. Whoa, stop just a second. Pop psychology. That's weird. That sounds very worldly. But it's not. Forgiveness at its core, you've heard me say this before, at its core is a decision that we make not to punish. For me to forgive someone else, it means that I say I am willing to live with the consequences of your sin. I will not punish you for what you did to me. I won't punish you in my thoughts the way I think about you, I'm not going to punish you with my words, and I'm not going to punish you with my actions. It's an ongoing process. I will choose to walk in forgiveness. I will not, I will forgive you. I will not punish you. And that's what Jesus has done for the daughters and sons of God. He paid the price, and he says, I will live with the consequences of what you have done, and I will not punish you for your sins. You are free. I took that punishment on myself. It's been paid for. But in us, pride always rears its head. It tries to anyway. And pride often disguises itself as false humility. And so pride in us says, no, I have to pay for my own sin. I can pay for my own sin. I'm able to and I must. Therefore, because of this particular sin of which I am so ashamed, or because of this particular sin through which I hurt people so much, I will continue to punish myself in my mind, in my heart, potentially even in my body, until I have paid for this sin, until I have gained my own redemption. That's not the way we think about it, but that's actually what we're saying. We're saying, God, your forgiveness, Jesus, your death, not enough for me. I'm a worse sinner than even you can deal with. And that's where that false pride comes in. Or false false humility. And so there comes a time for every, every child of God where we do have to say to ourselves, and I would recommend if that describes you, that you are, and you know, you know this, you are internally and eternally punishing yourself for past sins for which Christ has already paid the debt. To say to yourself out loud, I strongly recommend you do this in private, not on the bus or at work. Say to yourself in private, in the name of Jesus and because of his work on the cross, 
Nathaniel, I forgive you for blank. And I will not continue punishing you because Jesus has already taken that punishment on himself. Guilt displaced by forgiveness. And this brings us to the next to last, the sixth displacement. Law displaced by grace. Through Jesus and the cross, the law of Moses gives place to the grace of God. We often think of grace as a New Testament construct, but it's not. Grace is inherent in the plan of God from creation. And Paul reflects this. He first alludes to grace at the very start of the sermon when he says that God chose Israel. That right there, those three words, God chose Israel, that is a tremendous illustration of God's grace. Why? Did Israel, choose, did, did Israel deserve to be chosen? No. Had they earned it? No. Were they better than all the other nations around them? No. Were they more holy than all the other nations? No. Were they more powerful? No. Were they more beautiful? No. God's sovereign choice of Israel is grace. Completely undeserved, completely unmerited, God chose them. And he chose to show his favor to that nation. He could have chosen any other one. He could have shown his, he could have revealed himself on earth through any other nation he chose, but he didn't. He chose Israel. That's grace. Law says, in order to be united with God, you must be perfect. And here are the rules that you must follow without any failures to achieve perfection. If there is one failure, no matter how small, it will separate you irreparably from the presence of God. So, that's the standard, that's the task, that's law. No failures accepted, no weakness allowed. No matter how small the failure, it's too great. A way I've illustrated this before, maybe I have with some of you, I'm not sure. Um, but imagine that you are getting ready for an interview for a job you really, 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 really want. And um, you've longed for this job. And it's the final interview. You can almost taste it. It's so close you can almost touch that job. And you get up in the morning. The night before, you had ironed uh, a white shirt that you were going to wear. You think it looks good on you, so it's the sharpest look you've got. So you take it out, and you notice as you put on the shirt that there's a black spot right here on the chest, about the size of a 25 centavo coin, right there on the chest. And... Every person that I have asked this hypothetical question to has always said the same thing. I said, what do you do? And I say, huh, I wear something different. And my return argument to that is, why? That's so stupid and so demanding. 99.9% .9 of that shirt is beautiful white. Why are you going to change shirts because of one small spot? It's not that big a deal. Calculate the area of the surface area of that shirt, and you will see, you will see, there is far more white than black. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter. You know this. One sin, it's too much. One failure before the law, it's too much. 
we're separated from God. That's law. But what about grace? What does grace say? Jesus has lived the law perfectly. He has fulfilled it. And he has died instead of you paying your price. And he offers his fulfillment of the law to you. His death in place of your death. His life in place of your life. Will you accept it? The way Paul reads it or preaches it is this. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. The law can identify sin, but it cannot remove sin. Grace removes sin. Law displaced by grace. There's another clear indication of grace in these verses, though. Specifically in verse 48, after the sermon is over and Paul and Barnabas have these conflicts with the local Jews, when they're done preaching to this whole city, there's a phrase that Luke writes, again in verse 48, that says, And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Might we think that maybe Luke got his, his verbs out of order? Like, shouldn't he say all who believed were appointed to eternal life? But that's not what he writes. The appointment preceded the belief. And again, this is grace. This is grace. It is God's initiative. And by writing it in this way, Luke is highlighting God's role in salvation, his initiative, his grace. And so he appoints first. And people who are appointed to eternal life then respond. Now that response is important. We can get into an argument later about whether uh, appointment means that people will always say yes or whatever. We're not going to. I'm just saying we could. But all I want to do right now is show what Luke is saying here. God appoints and then all who are appointed believe. They respond to that appointment with their human will saying yes to Christ. And it all begins with his grace. Grace displaces the law. I know we're ready for the seventh one. Seventh and last displacement. When Peter finishes preaching, the aftermath in the city is very interesting. That first Sabbath, there's a buzz. Everyone who is in the synagogue is buzzing. And those are the Jews and the God-fearers. And they follow Paul and Barnabas out of the synagogue. And, and they're, they're talking, they're asking, they want to hear more. And Paul and Barnabas, keep, keep, they keep teaching them. They keep telling them throughout that week. And the buzz is so great that it spreads through the whole city. So the next Sabbath, when they gather, the text says almost the whole city is there. I don't know how that happened. I don't know how they got, this was, there were no cell phones, there was no WhatsApp, there was no internet, there was no news. It spread through the whole city. I don't know how it worked at the location. Was there space in the synagogue? I doubt it. Were they outside? I don't know. But this vast crowd is there. Now, wouldn't everyone be excited about that? Wouldn't those people who had been in, in that meeting the week before, wouldn't they look out and say, wow, look at this. 
All these people, no. They became jealous. And who became jealous? The Jews. In the context, it's some of those same people who were buzzing that previous week. And what's bothering them? What are they jealous about? They heard Paul declaring Jesus as the Savior, the Messiah. Good news. But then they saw Paul and heard him preaching that same news, the same salvation, the same Messiah to the Gentiles. Welcoming the Gentiles together with them. Wait, we're the chosen people. We are the heirs of the promise. Why are Gentiles being welcomed? And in their pride and hatred and jealousy, they reject the very message of salvation that had been given them through their own people. What they were excited about a week before, they have now rejected for one reason only. Why? Because it was also going to the Gentiles. I heard an acquaintance of mine preach a sermon once on Jonah. And as an illustration, he told a story that had happened to him as a younger boy. I don't remember the exact ages, but he had a, he himself, I believe, was 14. And he had a younger brother who was 13 or 12. And uh, there was a rule in their family that uh, the boys could not watch the Spider-Man movies until they were 14. I think that was the age. I don't remember exactly. And so this friend of mine had been so looking forward to the premiere of the second Spider-Man movie. He was longing for it, looking forward to that day. And his parents told him that they would take him to that movie on that day. Well, for some turn of events, I don't remember exactly what, his younger brother, who was 12, so who had not re yet reached Spider-Man age, um, had to be with the family that day. I don't know if they had tried to arrange something else for him, but regardless, he was with them. And so the parents said, you know what? I know how much you have looked forward to this movie, so we're going to allow your younger brother to go with us. And this acquaintance of mine, he said, I became so angry. So angry. This was so unjust. This was so wrong. I had waited until that age of 14. And now my brother who's 12, he doesn't have to wait. He doesn't have to go through all that time. He gets to watch the Spider-Man movie. And so I said to my parents, I prefer not to go. <laughs> and so the parents asked him. They said, okay, we will listen to you. But this is your choice. It is your choice. Either we all go or we don't go at all. And he said, I'd rather we not go at all. So they didn't go. That's kind of the attitude of, of some of these people here at Acts. It's like, wow, I could have eternal life? No. If me having eternal life means that they get to have it too, I don't want it. That's what they, that's what, listen to what Paul says. When the Gentiles heard, oh, I don't know, sorry, backing up. Paul says to the Jews, we had to speak the word of God to you first since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. You probably don't remember this, but the very first sermon that I preached on the book of Acts, I talked about a theme we we're going to see develop, which is that the Gentiles were going to be much more open to the gospel than the Jews. And that resistance and persecution against the apostles, against the disciples, against the believers was going to rise. 
but it was almost always going to be at the hands of the Jews and not at the hands of the secular authorities or the Gentile authorities. We're seeing this come true now. By the end of this account, the, the Jews have stirred up the powerful, wealthy, influential women and men of the city, and they expel Paul and Barnabas, the messengers of eternal life, the messengers of forgiveness, the messengers of grace. They kick them out. If it means that the Gentiles get it too, we don't want it. And here Luke shows yet one more displacement. The Jews are displaced as the primary revelatory people on earth. They are displaced by the church. Now I'm going to get to this in a moment. I just want to say I'm using two different words. I am not using the word replaced. I am using the word displaced. And there's a reason for that. There is a nuance between those two. The Jews are displaced by the church because the church is now the community on earth through whom Jesus continues to reveal himself to this broken world. And the beauty and the irony is that the Jews are also invited to be part of that community along with the Gentiles. The church is Gentile and Jew. Remember the two rivers. Because once the Jews reject the fulfillment of all of their history, who is Jesus, there's no place else to go but to those who will not receive it, but to those who will receive it, rather. So I do not believe that Israel no longer has a purpose in God's plan. I do not believe that God has abandoned them and totally transferred all of his affections onto the church, even and in spite of Israel's rejection of his plans and purposes. Now we do all know that ultimately everyone who rejects Christ will face condemnation. But as a professor of mine in seminary said, actually a professor who had grown up in Jerusalem was fluent in both Arabic and Hebrew. He said, if we believe today that God can simply withdraw his favor and his promises from one group of people and give them to another, replace them, how can we as a church ever have confidence and God's promises to us. I think that's worth considering. So Israel has not been replaced, but they have been displaced. Their place has changed. Their place has shifted. And the church has become the primary revelatory community of God's grace and salvation on earth. Wow. So let's bring this all to a close. God's plan marches forward inexorably toward its final fulfillment at the end of earthly time. As I said earlier, Luke and the other New Testament writers clearly see the highlight, the apex of human history is the Christ event, his incarnation, life, death, resurrection. And it's odd for us to think that even though we are living today in a time of great upheaval, we are already past the climax of history. So from a literary perspective, we would say that we are in the days of falling action, days that are leading us to the final resolution. But the climax is behind us. Christ has come. The cross has stood. And it's an empty cross and an empty tomb. And as God's plan marches on through time, his work of displacement continues as he transforms souls into the image of Jesus. 
God offers his displacement to humanity continuously. What is that displacement? To see self displaced by Christ himself on the throne of each life. That's the call of the gospel. That sinful, rebellious people who are governed by the tyranny of self would, through repentance of sin and belief in Jesus, see self forever displaced by the governing reign of Christ in each heart in each life. That is what God offers to us. Now there's also a warning in this passage. I don't know if you caught it or not. There's a dire warning for those who treat God's offer of self-displacement with contempt or rejection. Paul quotes from the Old Testament, take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. What is that? Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish. For those who scoff at the gospel, for those who reject this offer of self-displacement, for those who choose law over grace, for those who choose guilt over forgiveness, there's a dire warning of death. And to reiterate Paul and Barnabas' stern response to the Jews who resisted them, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we turn now to the Gentiles. To reject God's offer of displacement is to reject eternal life. And if we're not going to live eternally, there's only one other option, and that is eternal death. 